Hi, you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast and movie film. My name is Soren Howe, and I'm here with Esther Rosenfield. And today we're going to be discussing the seventh episode of season three of Deadwood, which is Unauthorized Cinnamon, uh, directed by Mark Tinker, uh, our friend Mark Tinker, who uh, directed uh, an episode just uh, a couple of episodes ago this season. And Regina Carrado is the writer. Um, so. I love this episode. <laughs> I also loved this episode. <laughs> I was kind of freaking out about how good this episode is. <laughs> and what I'll say is, I don't know about you. I don't know if you feel strongly about... I'll, I'll, I'll throw two caveats in. One is, I don't think that there was much in the way of... And maybe you'll you feel you feel differently, but I didn't I know what you're about to say, and I do. Uh, yeah, on we the on the <laughs> on the technical side, I didn't see a whole lot going on there. There was there were a couple of moments that I I liked, but mostly, um, even compared with his last episode, uh, which is the name is escaping me now. Um, it was the season premiere. Was it the season premiere? I think so. Okay, uh, so was it Tell Your God to, to Ready for Blood? That was the yes. Okay, um, and. Uh, so on that end, I, I I wasn't bowled over, and then I also thought that the tension of Odell's meeting with Hurst, while it was conveyed and it like that storyline was effective this episode, I it was begging for a to just hold on that scene and like let the tension build, and it kept cutting away, which kind of killed. I felt like the the what could have been a really intense moment. Uh, between Hearst and Odell, and so for me, I, and that was a directorial choice, an editorial choice, whatever. But like that, that I think wasn't as effective as it could have been, partially because there's all these other storylines going on as that's happening, and it wasn't necessary, right? You could have front loaded this episode with that sequence and just let it play out in its tension, sort of let it sit in its tension, and then proceed with the rest of the episode. Um, but. It, the choice was made to, to intersperse through the whole episode to keep it quite varied throughout, um, which, you know, it's all fine and well. It's just that last episode ended on such a cliffhanger, and this episode literally picks up immediately uh, with Aunt Lou basically still in <laughs> in the middle of her run to uh, to the hotel. Um, and, like, so you've, you've basically maintained that tension, and then you break it by cutting away to these other scenes. So that was... Those would be my two caveats... Um, but they're small caveats relative to all of the amazing, you know, uh, moments in this episode that are that are largely narrative and uh, also to do with the performance. So I don't disagree with you about the Odell thing. I think you're right that it you kind of want that scene to just keep going and keep building mm. and uh, and feel like more of a complete answer to the question of last week. Um, as opposed to here where it's kind of, you know, last week that was one of the main things we were focused on. And then the, the conclusion of that is not one of the main, it is one of the main things this week, but it is not the main focus of the episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I do think, but that's kind of like, I guess that's kind of like the nature of a, just a TV or a TV show like this, that you're going to be juggling. You're going to have a lot of balls in the air and you can't really, you can't have the main storyline on a show like Deadwood that is an ensemble show that it does have so many things going on at any one time. Um, you know, you can have a 
main-ish storyline, which is what the Hearst stuff is, is this season, but it's never, you know, it hasn't overwhelmed a series of episodes in a row since the beginning of the season. They've kind of taken a break from that. So I think that it is sort of just the nature of television that you're going to lose, and the editing choice as well. I mean, to not just, ha- you know, a show like, and again, I know you haven't seen it yet, and I'll get you to watch it someday, but Twin Peaks uh, Season 3, uh, a lot of that, will it'll do like a 20-minute chunk of an episode that's just one scene or one sequence with and never cut away from it. Um, and that show is just a lot... F- the editing is a lot more freeform, you know? It, it does intercutting, but a lot of the time it's just like a third of this episode is just going to be this one scene. Um, and I would have liked to have seen something like that here with the Odell thing, um, but I, you know, we, we judge on a... Deadwood doesn't need to be judged on a curve because it's a fantastic show, but I think just the time that it was created in and the nature of television in that time, it's kind of, I think it's okay to expect that it's going to indulge in some uh, more traditional uh, structuring in this case. Well, um, okay, so so just two quick things on that. First, I, I want to just caveat all this whole that whole conversation by saying I'm fully uh, aware and it's one of my actually biggest pet peeves about critics who play like uh, you know, Monday was it Monday morning quarterback? Is that the phrase? Yeah, God, yeah. I know nothing about football. But, um, <laughs> Me neither, but I know that. <laughs> but that is the phrase, right? So, um, who are like, this is the way it should have been. It's like, I am not a filmmaker, right? So I don't, I can critique what exists. I try not to say what should have been. It's just that what I can say is, so uh, instead of saying it should have been X, Y, Z way, what I will say is just that the tension was broken uh, by those edits. But, no, yeah, and I'm with you. I'm but, right. but so so just to throw that out there for, for listeners who, because and I think it's a very valid complaint about critics who do that because I think it's, it's it's irritating. Um, unless they are themselves filmmakers, in which case it's a different story, I suppose. Um, but uh, as a uh, a caveat to that caveat, I will say that this show has actually done that before. In a, in a it has, and I thought that as I was saying it, and I'm glad you said that. right because like I, I think <laughs> probably the most obvious episode uh, episode that comes to mind is when uh, when William gets kicked by the horse. Right, that tension just builds and builds and builds throughout the um, episode, and it has to do with how the episode's edited together, and it allows the, and I think it has to do with the music, and everything builds to this like conclusion towards the end. But that's an example of it using intercutting to build that tension. It's using intercutting. It's using music, um, as opposed to like it's not like the thing with William is just. We're following that one. We're following William for ten minutes. You know what I mean, right? But I think you're uh, no. But I think you're right that it, that's an example of the show accomplishing that a little more effectively. Right, right, right. Yeah. No. I and 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 allowing that because here it's like these these scenes. Those scenes kind of sort of complemented each other. They sort of all lined up in a certain way to allow that to conclude in a certain way. But like the this episode, the other scenes aren't really related. They're sort of related, right? In that, like, Hearst is talking about what he, you know, his his, you know, mission for vengeance, or or whatever. But um, it's still kind of detached. Like they're not building on each other. Um, I guess stylistically or, or tonally. I guess it's, yeah, that's the right word. Tonally, um, the way it does in that, those other episodes. So, anyway, so just wanted to throw those two things out there. I do want to disagree with you though, um, <laughs> which is funny because last week. 
I was the one who said there wasn't really anything of, of note directorially going on, and you disagreed with me, and you had brought a lot to the table. I thought the direction this episode was really, really good, and I was surprised that it was Mark Tinker, because Mark Tinker, I think, did a good job with the season premiere, but not a particularly noteworthy job in a way that like an Ed Bianchi or a uh, or, or a Dan Minahan does. Mm. Um, I thought he was... He, this episode, every single... So this episode takes place entirely over the course of one night. And normally a Deadwood episode will take place over the course of a day. And we don't... It'll end at night and it'll pick up the next morning. And we don't really see the town operating after the sun goes down a lot. Um, I thought it was so cool the way they presented every scene in this episode. It's just like shadow and torchlight mm. and and darkness swallowing up these characters. The scene where Blazinov... I did notice that. I did notice that. Yeah, yeah. The scene where Blazinov takes the telegram to Al and there are these close-ups of them and it's literally just black behind them. There's nothing. Um, that's awesome. It's really cool, and it, it it says something about where the you know this moment of crisis that the town is in, that everybody is in right now, this moment of like panic and like desperation, um, you know, like the the moment the night is darkest. It's really it's it's really effective, and I thought it was shot really beautifully. Yeah, I definitely noticed that, and I didn't really know how to put it into words. So thanks for that, because I mean. Last episode, I thought it was the same technique in some ways was used, but very sparingly uh, to convey certain moments. But you're right, this whole episode has it frequently. And I, I couldn't tell if it was something that I just... Even the, just like when Hearst and Odell are walking outside, you also get this, like a torch, somebody with a torch even walks by um, and like lights them up as as walking by. And I thought that was really cool. Um, and I wasn't, again, I wasn't sure if it was just some like a feature of it being at night. But I didn't really think about the fact that it is mostly at night, which means, um, which you know, already makes it different than a lot of other episodes. I think some episodes have have had a, a good chunk of you know night um, as a as a significant portion of the episode, but but not many. And if if um, if that is the case, it was it was it's not very many episodes. But this one, you're right, does uh, embrace that aspect um, and does you know give that feeling of you know that like Helm's Deep feeling, right? Like what what's uh, when's the dam going to break when's uh when's the army going to arrive kind of thing and that's exactly what is um in the works as far as uh Hearst's plan uh, and and how everybody's responding to it in the camp absolutely i just thought i was kind of taken aback by by tinker's work in this episode because like i said i didn't think of him as one of like the main guys of of the director the directorial crew of this show um, but this really elevated him in my eyes. Like I have, I have pulled him in higher esteem now. Cause I, I yeah, I, I thought he did really good work. <laughs> well, I mean, there was that great shot, even in the beginning of the, uh, the last episode he directed where he, the, yeah, it was, it was the premiere. You're right. With the camera pan, um, yeah, pans to the left and then, uh, uh, moves down, uh, to Hearst as he's yes. laying on the ground. So, yeah, so this was, uh, uh, hell of an episode for a couple of reasons one um we have obviously we have this uh this little mini showdown between hearst and odell which uh goes a bit better than so so uh i had i was pretty sure that you weren't correct that he would die um in this scene but there is the threat basically of 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 death the open over threat the like the very literal threat mm-hmm, exactly and he says afterwards you know basically 
the only reason you're alive is because you had this gold. Um, or at least that we didn't attack you, but the implication is, you know, quite uh, lethal. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so there's, there's that. And there's also this other element, which is that uh, it doesn't appear unless we have some other, unless you have some other evidence. Um, you last episode, you were really convinced that Odell was uh, trying to cheat Hearst. And that is a, certainly a theory. It's certainly that we, something that we haven't been shown one way or the other. Um, but it doesn't appear that there's any strong evidence, evidence that he's definitely trying to cheat Hearst. And he even says to his mother, who he's being pretty honest with, it seems like at this point, that he's not trying to cheat Hearst. Hearst is reasonably sure. Um, That's and, the thing. Is yeah, Hearst kind of sees. Or, well, again, we don't know exactly what's going on, but Hearst, his immediate assumption is like, "You're lying to me. All of this could be fabricated. Mm. There's no, there's no definitive proof you've brought me. You're trying to fleece me." Which is fair um, enough. I mean, considering. I mean, yeah, and it's. I mean, that is again. That was my assumption going coming in from last week. That that's mm. exactly what was going on. Um, and again, it it makes. It's possible that 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 Odell, again. I I still don't know if Odell is telling the truth or not. But if he is not, this plan, based on Hearst's reaction, seems pretty foolhardy. Because like, of course, there's no. He can't offer any definitive proof, right? Like he can bring a lump of gold, but who knows where you got that lump of gold? And you can bring a survey of the land, but Hearst says you can just pay someone to draw that up for you, and it doesn't matter. So. It's one thing to say you found gold in Oklahoma. It's another thing to say you found gold in Africa. Because um, Hearst, like, short of sailing across the sea to another continent, has no way of verifying that you're telling the truth. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I still don't know. I still don't know what to make of Odell. He seems... He seems in a lot of ways very shrewd, but also just... If he's lying he's that's stupid i think i said that last week this is a stupid plan if he's not telling the truth yeah i mean it's hard to tell like it's so hard to see what's there's a lot of peeling back of masks like between the two of them and what's going yeah. on but you know he says he's a deacon but we just saw last episode that he's like taking the lord's name in vain and doing all these things that a deacon theoretically wouldn't do uh <laughs> he's drinking which hearst then points out and he goes yeah you're right i thought you wanted uh, you know a christian black guy like that would be more appealing to you um but the being a deacon thing linked him to the claim so now what's his link to the claim so like maybe he is a deacon or he's not like it's very hard to tell what the hell is happening <laughs> Um, and I don't think we're going to get like time in Liberia. So be interesting, but yeah, I doubt we're ever leaving Deadwood again. I was going to say it's, uh, you know, it was only three seasons and, um, like five episodes left. Yeah. And five, and it raises questions about, you know, where was David Mills going to go with this? I mean, yeah. Who the hell knows? Right. Um, I just want to say also that I know that you have been keen to see like the next episode, next episode. Um, but after it, you know, after the next few episodes, I'm like, there is no more, right? So, you know, I, what's kind of nice is going through and enjoy. Because when I watch this on my own, I just plowed through it, um, as you can imagine. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, it's nice going like you know one week at a time. It's a 
it's nice to just sort of paste it. I did the same thing with Firefly because I knew it was only a few episodes and then that was the whole show. Um, and I just like, I'm going to go slowly because after this, there's no more. And I was really happy that I did that. Um, but Well, I feel less anxious about it knowing that there's the movie. Like yes, knowing that, all right, yes. they, they did get to conclude this story. Absolutely. It's not going to just leave me hanging. I can't imagine watching this show <laughs> at any point in between like it originally airing and now and having and just, like 13 years of just sitting there waiting and for however see sort of however unsatisfyingly season three ends i don't know but that's kind of my assumption based on the way people talked about the show like however incomplete it seems like i can't imagine getting to getting through this show and then just being like <laughs> i guess that's it I, I guess there's no more well imagine being hbo and canceling this and then that you know, i cannot imagine and then years later like just green lighting some choices i won't well what's good is that (laughs) given the fullness of time everything that is too unpopular to continue making will eventually become worth reviving as a nostalgia property so like it doesn't you know if your favorite show gets canceled don't worry just wait 10 years and they will try to sell it to you again (laughs) that is true that is true um you know let's all look forward to the deadwood reboot coming in 2035 (laughs) Deadwood, Deadwood too. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, guess, I suppose there's not much else to say about uh, the Odell Hurst stuff. I mean, did you have any other any other uh, uh, thoughts about that? I mean, the big thing we get, the way that it ends basically is is Hurst goes on this like rant about how much he hates Deadwood and that he wants to burn it all to the ground, basically. Um, Although he does have this interesting moment, and in my notes I wrote the words Neolib Hurst, um, <laughs> where basically Odell is like, because Hurst is talking about how gold is the great, um, not the great equalizer, but he's basically saying like gold it organizes is what, people. He says it organizes. That's literally what he says. Yeah, he says it organizes people toward a common purpose, and he says of the camp, like gold. I th- I wrote it down. Is the color brought commerce here and order such as it is, basically. Mm. Um, so he has this notion that, like, the reason gold matters is because it creates society. The reason that money matter, money and capital creates society. And the reason I wrote Neolib Hearst is not just because of that, but it's because Odell challenges him and says, well, what if you're black? Like, what does it do for me? Right. And Hearst in a like seeming very genuine is like, Oh, but that's the great thing. Like, uh, gold brings us, it brings all people together and it doesn't matter what color you are because it's, you know, it, 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 it brings us all toward a common purpose. Um, and like, of course, like that's how Hearst sees the world. Of like, course oh, I don't, is. I don't care what color you are as long as you make me money. Right. Right. And like, he does is, say, you know, the reason you're alive is because of gold, which, yeah. you know, is, or whatever. You know, yeah, your, well, the, your safety, un, yeah, your... And the unspoken second sentence of that being, your life means nothing to me except for how much money you can make me. Exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's very Adam, I guess Adam Smith, or... Yeah. You know, that kind of view of, of um, markets as being like the foundation of society. Um, I just think it's interesting that they don't play Hearst as like super conservative like he's not a right-wing caricature in his love of capitalism he is very much uh he fashions himself like a liberal or a neoliberal and i think that's that's interesting absolutely absolutely i mean on on the market side of things uh yeah. on the 
social side of things, I would say. On the labor side of things. Well, again, and on the labor side of things, no one would call him a leftist. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I say he likes organizing society, but doesn't like his laborers organizing. That's the only kind of organizing he likes. Exactly. Um, yeah, and he's also like crying, talking about how he was put in jail. I mean, <laughs> wow. Last episode, I think I actually put in my notes that he was crying about, but I was like exaggerating. I was like, he's like crying and whining about how he was, you know, this indignity that was done to him. Um, But here he's like literally crying to the point where he points it out to Odell um, about being an outcast. It's like, oh my God. Why can't he just go be a billionaire, like chill? He just can't help himself, but be directly involved (laughs) in what's going on. It's like a compulsion. You know what I mean? Like, there's something particularly weird about that, that he just can't just enjoy being stupidly wealthy. Yeah. And he I, doesn't I do anything with it. He, he has all his money, and he's moved into, like, a frontier camp. Mm-hmm. Why? What, what? I mean, obviously, he, he doesn't like the high life of San Francisco or wherever. Um, but, like, it's a choice, and it's a weird one, all things considered. Yeah. Uh, and then he complains about it, like, you know, they don't want me here. And it's like, well, why are you here? Like, go live in a mansion on a mountain somewhere. Like, it's just weird. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, we'll see if that goes anywhere uh, with Odell. Um, one thing that we do know about Hearst's people is that they're all perfectly willing to murder, uh, which yeah. Lou points out. And there's that really horribly sad scene where... Um, they Odell and, and Aunt Lou talk again afterwards and uh oh by the way during the meeting Aunt Lou has uh Richardson spy for her mm-hmm. and like it's just amazing how much more um she thinks of Richardson than E. B. Farnham does. How much um, more talkative Richardson is to her than he ever is with Farnham. Oh yeah. Yeah, he actually has like has thoughts. Um, which is, and he like can, can perceive like an entire argument instead of being like, I'm stupid. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so there's this really sad scene with Aunt Lou and Odell where, you know, she's, she's really sad that, uh, he's basically like, he's not the person that she wanted him to be. And he's mad at her for sending him off to, to Liberia. And it becomes clear that, you know, she did that for a very, very particular reason, but that's been a real sore spot between them. Um, and that he was perfectly ready to, like, just not see her again, you know, if possible, because of that, you know, past hurt. And that she he really is just here to see Hearst. Um, and it's just a really sad scene, but then eventually they do end up hugging, and it's, uh, yeah, it's emotional. Yeah, I'm glad we got a little bit of resolution there. Um, because their relationship was really tense, and... Uh, you know, obviously Odell, we we still don't know. I still don't see good things happening to Odell. <laughs> I gotta say. Um, so I'm glad there was a little bit of, uh, conclusion, uh, uh, a little bit of catharsis with him and Aunt Lou. Yeah. Especially since it looks like he's now leaving the town. Although we still don't know yet because I, one of the things is, um, that we saw at the end of the episode was, um, Fields is still trying to, still planning to try and convince Odell to go with him to San Francisco. So now having said that, I think Hearst has decided this man is either going to deliver me gold or will die. So Mm -hmm. 
Um, I don't really think he has that option anymore. He did before. Now he doesn't. Yeah. Um, Not great. So the other, I, the other like strong central point of this episode was the, uh, or plot point of the episode is uh, the meeting at the gym, mm. um, which pulls in a lot of different threads because it involved all of the major players in camp. Um, and there's this, uh, this fun scene where, well, sequence of scenes, I guess, where Johnny goes around camp trying to recruit, um, I guess, uh, Tom Nuttall and the doc and Saul and a few other folks, uh, to come to the, uh, come to the gem to try and figure out what to do about Hearst. Uh, so yeah. Oh, and it's all centered around uh, uh, one of the running themes, and this has been a theme throughout. Uh, it's like a running joke as well among Deadwood fans. Um, is canned peaches as like the centerpiece of these meetings? Uh, that Al breaks out these canned peaches, and that's like, you know, his fancy food, I guess, for for like high powered yeah. meetings. Uh, and um, the show gets its title from the fact that Jewel decides to put cinnamon on the table against Dan's wishes, uh, which we then find out, uh, despite his threatening her, she still <laughs> went through with it and put it on the table. <laughs> as always a part of a, a master plot to murder Harry Manning, which, uh, you know, who saw that coming, right? I really, for a second, I was like, did she poison the cinnamon? <laughs> Is the cinnamon, did someone poison the cinnamon? <laughs> She's working for Hearst. <laughs> <laughs> what a turn that would be. That'd be um, insane. <laughs> I gotta say, by the way, we shouldn't let it go. Unauthorized Cinnamon is one of the best episode titles I've ever heard. Incredible. Oh, it's genius. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, let's talk about this meeting. So, um, pretty much everyone is there. Harry Manning, by the way, is only there because Tom Nuttall insists he come along because he's a candidate for sheriff. And Harry Manning does not say anything, does not do anything, just eats peaches and cinnamon. Um, and then... I thought it was really funny later when <laughs> he was kind of debriefing with Tom and was like, uh, it didn't seem right to mention the fire engine. <laughs> that's all. That's just all he cares about is the fire truck. He's, um, he's like a really, he seems like a, like a nice normal human. He just does not want to be involved, uh, with all of the other things, but does have a very particular, he's like a one issue candidate. You know what I mean? It's like exactly <laughs> exactly what he is <laughs> um but yeah so he's it's just a, in the race to make to to make his point and then he'll he knows he's not gonna win but he just wants to get the issue of the fire truck onto a national stage and then he'll drop out <laughs> maybe write a book uh while he's in there um <laughs> go on a few uh go on a speaking tour or something um so yeah, so but I do like that. Speaking of Harry, I, one of the shots of this episode I actually really like is that really cool one where so there's that guy at the bar at Tom Nuttall's uh, in Tom Nuttall's place who I don't know if we've ever gotten his name. It's oh, you know what? It's so funny because it said I I was watching it with subtitles on and it said his name and I think it was Walt something. Sure. <laughs> I I took note of that because I was like who is this i've i don't think i've ever seen this guy before and now he's, he's definitely here he's definitely been in other episodes just sort of sitting at the bar and like will occasionally say things I guess but so. he's but not he has lines yeah but he's just like, like pertinent pertinent lines yeah um so yeah there's a so but there's a scene the shot of um and i'll try and uh i'll, I'll link to a, a, an image of it that i took where it's 
uh, focused on um, sort of on this alt character, um, and then they sh- the focus shifts. The HBO synopsis. The HBO synopsis identifies him as Rutherford. So maybe it's Walt Could Rutherford. Be. Absolutely. Who knows? So let's say it's Rutherford, right? So it's sort of semi on okay. him. He's on the right hand side of the the frame. Uh, Harry's on the other side, and then it shifts focus so that the the right hand side of the frame switches to the mirror at the bar with uh, Tom Nuttall uh, in it, and Harry's talking to what looks like the reflection that's behind him, um, and it's just this really cool way of framing a shot to like yeah. positionally orient everybody using this weird angled mirror that's behind the bar. Um, so I really, yeah, yeah I really like yeah. that. Um. Yeah, it's. A, I, I also like that Steve is like, well, I own the livery now. Shouldn't I be at the meeting? And everyone's like, no. Why? No. Why would, why would they want you there? Which is, you know, a fair question. Although, uh, what did you think about this lampshading of, uh, of Alma not being in the uh, yes, meeting? Yes, I really like that. Because, I mean, yeah, it's, it is very like, it is very like making the point capital letters um just to have a character say it out loud but i also think it's good that someone notes her absence because like yeah like i think we would have probably noted her absence if no one had said it because it is very blatant that like she runs the bank she's literally one of the most important people she's one of the most besides hearst maybe the most powerful person in town uh just in terms of like she doesn't even seem to know the meeting's happening yeah exactly she has no idea and I mean, she is, to be fair, kind of indisposed with the dope Very right true. now. Very true. Very um, true. But Al doesn't. But I know don't. That. I don't. I don't. Yeah, exactly. I don't think that's why they didn't invite her. Yeah. Um. So. So. Right. So for people who aren't um. Don't know what lampshading is. It's this idea of pointing out an inconsistency or a flaw or a thing in the plot. Uh, like having the characters openly address it, but like not deal with it they sort of just say it like oh i guess he can fly now right and then the character's just flying so you've pointed it out but you haven't actually explained or in any way addressed the fact that this character could fly like you're just it's just an accepted thing or um like a character saying something really off color and being like wow that was a really racist comment it's like well great you've you've pointed that out but you haven't justified it or like sort of said anything about it and so this is an example of that where you've pointed out that you don't have any, or like, let's say an all like an all male super superhero movie, and being like, "Wow, there aren't any female characters here." That's like mm-hmm. very good job. You've pointed that out, but like you haven't actually introduced any female characters. That's like all blockbusters are nowadays. It drives me crazy. It's just it's point. Like, yeah. Hey, we're pointing out that we know there's a problem. It's like, well, but what if there? What if you wrote the movie? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Change like it. you wrote it to have the problem. <laughs> So that, I mean, it does raise that question, like, what? And obviously, it's not a problem of the writing here that she's not there. It's actually pretty astute of the writing for her not to be invited. Well, I mean, I don't, it, it would have, let's put it this way. It would have been less, I would be, I, I first I, I like this uh, moment, but then I thought back on it and I thought, you know, what, what, what might have worked here is um, having, someone suggests it like maybe al suggests it and like there's that conversation between al and sai anyway where al could have raised the point and then and it is true that throughout the episode he's realizing different people that he probably should have invited like langrish um but there's that moment with sai where he could have said you know i was thinking you know maybe i should invite uh alma 
And Sai could have said, that's not a good idea. And then even just left it at that, don't even have to go any further, because like, we would know, and he doesn't necessarily That's have to true. reveal it to Al. That's true. And then have it built into the plot instead of like a, you know, one of the the prostitutes who I'm all about giving more lines and like roles to for sure, but like they seem to, like they literally just are in this episode to say, "Hey, there's no women at the table," and then they just proceed to have no women at the, t- at the That's table. That's true. I mean, yeah, it's it is, but this this is why I said it's very much like on the nose making the point. Mm. Um, but also like, I do think this is kind of the trouble you run into on a show like Deadwood that is going to depict sexism and it's, it, mm-hmm. it is going to depict racism, for example, because I think that the show skirts this line really smartly a lot of the time. Um, it's like, how do you draw the line between depicting the way that people in society were at that time period and doing the writer things that bad that not bad writers do but but engaging with kind of tropes that are a problem that Mm. that are uh that are (laughs) i will not say the word problematic because i hate it it's the worst Um, word that was ever invented it's terrible and i won't use it i refuse (laughs) um but yeah like it is i think deadwood has in the past and in the present been very very smart about depicting the way that the world was without being uh without engaging in tropes and cliches that reflect the way the, the, the that the world is now and how those problems have carried forward i guess is the way i'll put it um a different a think, different way to frame that and i think you will may probably agree with this but feel free to correct me if if uh if not um a different way to think about it is like or to understand what you just said is, is that in, so one of the things Quentin Tarantino gets accused of all the time is like setting things it with characters or in time periods where he just gets to drop the N word like 4,000 times. <laughs> That's uh, true. And it's like, well, they would have said it at the time or like, these are mobsters. So they definitely yeah. would be racist. Yep. And it's like, well, convenient yeah. that all of your scripts are in such a setting that you can just <laughs> constantly drop the n-word in like yeah. a, that he like single-handedly writes all those scripts and then also puts himself in the movies um <laughs> to, it puts himself in the movies to say the word oh yeah personally. big time big time and then and like, like listen yeah like listen i'm you know i think tarantino's fine i like i like some of his movies but same. that is exactly what i'm talking about of like all right there's a difference between depicting the way things were and you just want to be racist in a movie. Exactly, exactly. Like reveling in it or or, or picking it to get away with things, right? Um, but I say and that by to... the way, Tarantino, having yourself be blown up in uh, one of That's, the movies yeah. I will not specify uh, doesn't excuse it. You can't just be like, well, my character died, so I wasn't endorsing it. It's like, okay. Well, I was playing a bad guy, actually. <laughs> actually. You didn't do it in his weird, um, like accent thing he does in interviews where he like puts on this very racist <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that it's extremely disconcerting um but anyway yes He's exactly weird what a weird man He's a strange strange guy <laughs> I'm looking forward to that new one though but but uh Samuel Jackson seems to love him they literally seem to have like the best relationship it's very strange anyway oh god him and Spike Lee the whole back and forth it's like uh I really love Spike Lee and I really love Inglorious Bastards and Tarantino, the rest of his movies are fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. So anyway, um, 
so hopefully that what I, what long I, what tangent I, what, sort of explained the what point I mean to say by that what I mean to say by that about this episode is that I think that this is an example of the show depicting how this would have gone and not necessarily like you say lampshading it but I don't I didn't see it to me as a problem of writing that Alma isn't there I saw it to me as very naturally like of course they're not gonna invite Alma because they don't see her as a leader of the camp in the same way that fucking Tom Nuttall is apparently. Well, you know what I mean? So, so, so I, I was thinking that actually, just as you were saying that the way to maybe do it even better than the way I suggested before, again, here's me correcting the show, but <laughs> which is again, <laughs> my favorite thing um, is to have a character actually be sexist about it is to have like Al or whoever say like, no, we're not going to have any women here because, and then say something like really, right? So like, they don't skirt around Steve's racism, right? That's true. They just haven't. So this is true. You know what I mean? Like, but, this is just omission, whereas it could have been like, well, no, women will make it too emotional or something like that, which is again, well, super well but my thing, the thing, the thing I'm going to say here is that I don't disagree with you that there is a contrast to be drawn between this and how they depict Steve. But I will say that I was really struck by just the notion that they wouldn't talk about it, mm. that it wouldn't even occur to them it didn't to invite even, out. Yeah, they didn't even think about it. Yeah, that they wouldn't even. Yeah, that they would never even. There would never be a conversation because they would just never think that she was worth inviting. And to me, that's what is. That's why it works. This this moment, um, in spite almost in spite of itself, because of how blatant it is. It it is. It it, it is it is too the only women in the building at the time to say, oh, well, look, of course they, whoop-de-doo, they didn't invite Alma. Of course they didn't. Mm. I guess it doesn't, you know, I guess you can be uh, the most, uh, ri- the richest person in town and it doesn't matter if, if you're a woman, so. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I, I thought that was, I, I liked how that played out. Right. I, I think it's actually, if they didn't, so that's another way to have played it, to just not drink, bring attention to it at all, just have it be omitted. Um, but then it implies that, of course, the women don't have any thoughts about this, which they probably do. And, it, and that's what's good about it. I mean, right, exactly. we barely hear from the prostitutes ever, but it is nice that... And clearly they're observing the power interplay. It's like they know this is a yeah. meeting of power players, and they know that there's no women there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Many questions. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I there's just a lot of little things that happen at this. So the meeting uh, takes place. They uh, present their different plans. Uh, Al's like, I was just going to get a bunch of dudes with guns, but then I thought maybe I should ask everyone what they think because we don't want random people to die. And then Charlie's like, we should go at, you know, go at them and just take them out quickly because that's what Wild Bill well, would Char- do. Charlie specifically says we should evacuate the women and children. Oh, that too, yeah. The innocence, mm. and then go to war. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, which is, you know, not a terrible idea. No, I, I mean, I, again, I, I like, I like how forthright Charlie is about how he wants to handle this situation. I like, the, I think I said this last week. I love that he is very much like, you know, in his demeanor and in his personality, he can come across as kind of like not timid, but kind of like, I guess a little bit timid. He's always very like, well, you know, okay, Seth, I'm just gonna back off now. Yeah. Um, but so I like that in this moment he's like, no, we need to go in guns blazing and just like kill all of them. 
Like, I think that's cool. It is. It's very cool. And like I said, I love Charlie, and he only has a, a, a brief moment here, a lot more to do last episode. Um, but it's a good, like, just reemphasizing that point. Just want to make sure everybody's heard it. If we want to do that plan, that's cool, but I think it's the best plan, so we're going to do it. If uh, Or we should do that, so let's give it some consideration. But you can see everyone's reluctance, and I like that everyone's not immediately about, you know, all about guns blazing and, and, and getting involved that way. Um, and there's this, inc- I mean, I don't know. I didn't see it going this way. This moment where Seth takes out a note and hands it across the table to um, uh, Merrick. And it turns yeah, out this it's is, this letter. I mean, what do you think about this? This is crazy. It is crazy that Seth has a plan. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> well, I don't know that it was a, was that his plan or was he just taking it out? I think to, it was because he hands it to Merrick specifically. He does. But Merrick's he like hand the it to Al to read. reading he guy. Says, you're right. You're right. But I guess he I, says, I would have. And I think he says to print in your paper or like he implies it. No, I he doesn't. That, he doesn't say anything. It's I think it's Al. Maybe it is. But again, I think him handing it to Merrick is meant to suggest that this is. I mean, he didn't just write this letter for personal use, obviously. I think. I mean, my, I think my impression is that. What we're meant to understand is like. No, he this he came up with it. And what's funny is that he when he enters the meeting, uh, the first thing he does is take his badge off and throw it on the table, and which is funny because it's like his go to move, right? Mm. <laughs> it's like, well, we're in trouble. I'm retiring, <laughs> and that's his plan A at all times. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I my impression was just that he wanted the letter read so that it would motivate everyone to be like to see like this is the emotion, this is the the thing behind this. And then the decision to just print the letter itself wasn't necessarily planned. I don't know. I mean, who who the hell knows what's going on in Seth's brain? Um, I think what what I took from him specifically giving it to Merrick is that this is what he had come up with. Right, and that's that's perfectly valid as a um, as an idea. I, I I don't know if this was premeditated, but what we do know is that Al was literally moved by the letter. It looked like he was like, oh my, yeah. I was like, wow. And he says later he was. Um, and they make the decision to print it, which Langriche later, it was very funny hearing Al, like, Al's very out of sorts this episode. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's like hair's all askew, which is never the case. He's always perfectly you know, manicured and all that. Uh, and uh, and um, and done up. And uh, he's, like, not sure about the best course of action. He's, like, lost. He's totally lost. And uh, Langriche reassures him and says, like, that's actually a brilliant move because it's makes a public statement without making any direct comments or direct accusations and puts you in like the perfect position to put him at, uh, you know, like sort of put him off guard. Like, so he doesn't really know what to expect because he's expecting a fight, obviously, as we know from the, uh, the telegram, which we can talk about in a minute, but like, that's what Hearst knows. He doesn't know this weird, these weird mind games of, publishing this very public letter um, and what that'll mean to the workers, right? Um, not that necessarily can read the, the, the newspaper. Um, it's not clear how many of them are, are literate, but it'll mean a lot to the workers. It'll mean a lot to the camp. Uh, and it'll have spe- special meaning to Hearst, who knows exactly what the context of that letter is. Um, and as I, the more I thought about it, I actually did think it was quite a, a good move. I still think they should go and hire a bunch of people with guns. No, they should do that too. <laughs> For sure. Um, but I, I think that this was a, it's a good sort of um, first move. So, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, when, especially in this episode where Hurst has said very explicitly that his plan is to tear the whole place down. As he says, like, like Gamora. Like Gamora, yeah. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I like that this this idea is to very publicly paint themselves as like, we're good people here. This is a good town with a good heart and we care about each other. Um, in the face of this business tycoon who wants to destroy it. Um, I, it had never occurred to me that the answer might be to garner public sympathy. Yeah. But I think that's really cool. I, I think, yeah. And, and again, from my in my interpretation, the fact that this comes from Seth, who has never had a plan in his entire life, <laughs> is, is, is it's great. And it's a nice letter, too. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's so, when he's talking about how he's, I only met him once, and he was expressing grief and compassion for his for a fallen friend it's like oh it's i feel you know for this character who was like a nothing character who was in one scene it's yep. like I, I i feel for this guy <laughs> wow yeah he really puts a, a face you know to this uh this i mean obviously the, the recipient of the letter will know who this person is but um although it's not clear that it's ever going to actually make it to the recipient you know the <laughs> the person who allegedly um who was allegedly made out to, but um, yeah, so it's really nice. But then it, it, it pairs well with this, uh, this other, um, this other encounter with, with Blazanov. Um, oh my God. Ah, <laughs> this scene. I was, I shouted so loud when, <laughs> when he says, fuck confidentiality of communications. <laughs> I was like, yo, what? <laughs> I freaked. Oh my god, I couldn't believe it. Uh, uh, ah, it was so good. So, yeah, I mean, uh I like this scene in part just because of how it starts where Blazanov is like a little kid uh mm. who's like found his moral courage. It's a very funny way of introducing the characters uh like big moment here. Um but yeah, what did you what did you think of this uh I mean, it starts with him and Merrick. Sorry, it starts with him and Merrick. It's very, this very tender moment where he's like, will you take me to Al? And Merrick says yes. And he like grabs his hand and is like, and it like holds his hand. It's yeah, very, like a kid. It's very sweet. I don't know. I see. I personally found it kind of romantic in a way. Not that I think that that's literally what's going on, but I found it as very like, very powerful, the connection between these two men. Um, and it, it struck me as a very like, uh, Again, like a very tender gesture of uh, of trust. Um, I loved it. And mm. I just, I love their relationship. I think their friendship is so cool. Um, we'll get to actual gay characters later. <laughs> Speaking of <laughs> things I freaked out about. <laughs> um, but no, I love that, Bla- again, it's like just the escalating tension of what's happening in camp and the, cr- and the escalating crisis that's going on. I love that it has finally driven Blazanov to be like, I can't, I have to abandon like my core principle, the one thing that I, that I am all about because it's too much. I can't take it anymore. Um, I, ha- I like, I'm joining the fight. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, oh God, it was so cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. And I think it seems like he's right. Although it's going to feel, everyone's going to feel really dumb if 25 bricks show up. Oh, um, uh, well the way when he delivers the message to Hearst and Hearst is like, ah, oh, yes. Mm, bricks. Yes. And the only, thing, <laughs> and the only thing that, that it could be cocaine or something. I don't know. Um, but the what only twist that would be <laughs> the only thing that we know that Hearst wants now is to burn the camp down. So yeah, it must be that. Um, so yeah, that's a great, that's a great moment. Now there's a, now Blazanov is in on it. So basically everybody in the camp is against 
Um, and you even have Sai like hanging out with Al, um, and, yeah. like making plans sort of, um, by the way, can I just say this? And I, I, I can't believe I've skirted around this for this long. Uh, but the Gustav scene <gasps> is probably the funniest thing that's ever happened to Deadly. <laughs> it is so funny. It's incredible. It's so funny. Um, and it's just, I, 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 I think it's just, it's perfect comedy because it's, the setup is almost, almost suggests that he's got something worthwhile to talk about with Al. <laughs> and you fall for it, <laughs> just like Al does. Um, and when you realize that it's like Al, you realize that it's a complete waste of time. It's so unbelievably fantastic to watch Al, this character that we've watched for three seasons, listen to a sales pitch about something he's very sensitive about for uh, like fabric. I mean, just it just boggles the mind. And his response, I mean, Ian McShane is loving this, obviously. Um, and he just, his line de- delivery in the scene, oh man, it's fantastic. It's just fantastic. Just the way that he's like, (laughs) he's just like staring blankly and like desperately during this whole moment where he's like, oh God, why did I let this guy into my office? What was I thinking? Oh my God. When he's rapping, he's like, don't think about it. Just give me your hand. And he starts doing it. I mean, Um, you thought Langriche was a flamboyant character. Oh my gosh. This is like 10 times above. (laughs) And Al's like so stupefied by it. He just sort of lets it all happen. And then when they announce the bullocks come, he's like, oh, my God, thank you. <laughs> um, so uh, why don't we connect this a bit to, to what's going on with Doc Cochran, who is has uh, TB, it seems like. Yeah. Oh, God. I just. So here's the thing. Go ahead. I know. I think I know that he's in the movie. I think because I think I have seen a picture of him looking old. From the movie. But. I have every reason to believe that he is going to die this season because the last time remember there was a season long arc with a character progressively getting sicker and it ended with him getting smothered with a pillow. Um, that I do is remember the, that, that. Yes. That it's kind of hard to forget. Um, that is the arc. I am seeing some similarities here between what happened to reference Smith and what is happening to doc Cocker. And, and I am utterly devastated. It's uh look it's it's rough stuff and I'm hoping that it doesn't end badly. Um I guess there's like there's not much I suppose to predict on that front. Uh but what did you make of Al's response to him or the way they, their final interaction goes down in the I mean it's it is it's really sweet in its way, right? This is this is Al expressing expressing compassion and sympathy in the only way that he can, because he by is not a, <laughs> by, by screaming and throwing things at him. Right. When he says like, I am not, I'm, I'm not going to learn another doctor's quirks. Yep. And he slams the door to his office. He's, it's him saying like, I can't bear to lose you. That is the most like, uh, 
loving gesture he could think of. Well, and also um, he makes a very strong point when he's like, basically everyone in this camp's alive because of you, and Ward's like not miserable because of you, or is alive because yeah. of you, uh, and that you basically keep this whole camp running. So don't die because we mm-hmm. really can't like deal with it. Um, yeah, it's uh, he's seen them through like these incredibly to like horrible you know, through the plague. Mm-hmm. Remember the plague, right? The 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 finger, his uh his um kidney stones, uh through like jewel stuff. Like everybody has had issues that uh, the docs helped him through. And he's like a really good doctor. Like he's really good. Uh and losing him would be and he just happened to decide to like live in this frontier town, but like he could be anywhere, right? He could be like at a good hospital or something. And the tragedy of him, because what he says to Al is like, which, by the way, again, great doctor. He says, I've believed for many years that disease is airborne. Yep. Uh, I don't know a lot about the history of medical science, but I don't know how like widely accepted that would have been at the time. Um, I don't know, because I don't know that they knew about like germs even at that point in time. <laughs> so like just the the fact that he is keen enough a doctor to recognize that um Again, I, I don't. Maybe one of our listeners can let us know, like what the common wisdom was at the time as to how dis- disease was transmitted. But the but the what that leads to is the fact that he is he was going to he wants to isolate himself until he dies because he doesn't want anyone else to get sick. And right. That is just so tragic. Yeah. No. It's it's uh, it's awful. And Al's like, you know, you take one of these swatches. And um, what I can say is that um, as the resident microbiologist, is that I know that the forget who I'm talking. To. <laughs> The the I was trying to look. I haven't done microbiology in a while. I switched to biochemistry, and it's well. I know <laughs> they sound very similar. Let me I tell haven't you. done microbiology. Hey, guess what? <laughs> Only one of us on this podcast has, at one point in time, done microbiology. <laughs> um, yes, and how does one do microbiology? Um, but you, you uh, gotta tell me. <laughs> um, but uh, so there were like experiments done by various important microbiologists like um like pasture like pasteurization um and uh coke like coke's postulates which is a way of like determining whether um a particular pathogen causes a particular disease and all of those were happening at this exact time so like Hmm. pasture showed that um (laughs) this was a great experiment this is this is actually I, i think it's quite interesting um basically saying that there was this idea of spontaneous, I think it's called spontaneous generation, I think it's called, where they thought that, like, meat, like, left out rotting, spawned flies, because flies would appear there. Um, that they would, like, sort of grow out of the meat, as opposed to egg, flies flew in and, like, laid eggs, and the eggs came out of the huh. meat. Um, and that's just, like, people thought this was a thing that could happen. And he proved that wrong by taking what's called a pasture um, flask, and he puts, I don't know if it was like broth or something into the, to the bulb at the bottom and then had like this long sort of snaking tube coming out and nothing grew in this flask because nothing could get into the, it was a sterile flask and nothing could get in to the tube, uh, through the tube into the, like the bulb in order to like cause like a bacterial growth of any sort. And so he basically showed that like, and then when he leaves one out, to, to grow it like obviously it grows bacteria and he's like if spontaneous generation was a thing by blocking up this thing and we don't see anything grow there 
then we know that it's not like spontaneous generation isn't a thing, right? Like, so it was a, it was a, interesting, but these, these experiments were happening literally contemporaneous with this. And it's not like, you know, Doc Cochran is like attending science conferences. Um, but like, generally speaking, this was all quite new. Um, and people like thought things were just manifesting out of thin air. So uh, not the height of medical innovation, I would say. <laughs> interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Um, I'm glad to glad to know that. I don't know if I'm glad to hear it, but I'm glad to know it. Look, we wouldn't have modern medicine without it, so there you go. <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, what else do we have this episode? We have Jan. Don't and- give me that. You know exactly what else. <laughs> um. So yeah. So this was uh this was a long time coming, huh? <laughs> I can't believe. I can't believe. You let me go through so many episodes being like, oh, I love Jane and Joni's friendship. I mean, I tried to hint at it like a lot of times and you you just kind of were like, yeah, I really like their friendship. And I was like, all right. I can't believe I became that person. It's astonishing to listen as a lady. Look, she lives with her best friend. She'll be buried with her best friend, (laughs) her long term roommate. Just gals being pals. Yeah, exactly. Um, as a lady with some with some gay tendencies, um, <laughs> uh, I was obviously over the moon at this little development. Um, wow, how cool! Like again, but this is the thing: I I never expected this show to go there. Mm. I loved this show. I I never would have predicted in a million years that it would that it would have that it would do this. And you have actually several times brought this up and been like, "Yeah, they'll never do that." And then it's like, okay. <laughs> Uh, good on you for like keeping your mouth. When when next time we do a podcast, it'll be something you haven't seen, I've seen, <laughs> and then I'll get to do it. If we do Evangelion, there's going to be a lot that I'm going to have to keep. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> oh man, yeah, God, I'm just like I'm just thrilled. I'm thrilled that these characters get to do this. And the funny thing is that like it kind of happens all of a sudden. Like they have been building up to it, their relationship has very clearly been growing in like tenderness and 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 intimacy. Mm. Um, but it just kind of happens. Um, and I like the spontaneity of it. I like that there's not this very slow build up to like the first moment when they're like very gingerly touch. Um, I like that it's just like no, like they're they're close enough. We've seen them get close enough, and you could have played that off as just them being friends. But it can vary. Well, even Joni is willing to. It gives a. You know, they both are giving each other in very different ways. Obviously, Joni is very practiced at like interacting with other humans. <laughs> Jane kind of isn't in a sexual context. In a sexual context, very specifically, yeah. uh, and Jane kind of isn't. Um, but um, they both given each other a lot of outs, you know, so that they can just sort of play it off or leave or any number of things. And they yeah. both, it's like a game of chicken that just climb, you know, hits its climax at, at a kiss. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a really sweet moment. And yeah, you know, it's, it's been a long time coming, but it's, um, we don't see anything more either. And also, you know, here's another example of like, I, you know, I don't know how this would have gone down on other shows, but it's like a really small and fairly, like innocuous moment that's not played up for sexuality or any number of other things, even though it 
it could have. Um, it's not and sexy. it come it could have come across yeah it could have come across as quite it's romantic but it doesn't come across as like exploitative. That's the thing. I mean, listen, Jane is topless in this scene, but yeah. it is not. I mean, this is a this is a really good example of how like someone will say, well, how do you, how are you supposed to do nudity without making it sexualizing and objectifying? Well, this is how you do it. Yeah. You shoot it very neutrally. No ogling, no close ups, no, uh, you know, slow pans over her breasts. Mm. Just like, OK, so this is a person who's topless and that's it. And then. When they kiss, there's nothing, it's not, uh, you know, there's no, it's not shot for, like, titillation. It's not meant to, like, excite. It's, I mean, I was excited, but not for that, (laughs) not not in the way that, like, a lot of shows will have, you know, this is, I'm pretty sure this is a trope that has a name and that has been written about. Oh, I'm sure. um, Everything's a trope that has a name that's been written about. (laughs) I know, listen, we all know TV tropes exist, but that's not what I'm referring to. Right, right, right. What I, I think this is, I'm gonna, I'll see if I can find an article about it. But there was this trend in the '90s of they would have episodes of TV shows where two women would kiss, and they would advertise it as like, "Don't miss this week." Oh God! A shocking episode. Like this would, like, it was a trend that happened on so many shows. Um, just because, like, of the titillation factor of like, hey, 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 fellas. Yeah, exactly. Don't forget to tune in if you want to see two ladies kiss. Um. So I like that we can have these two characters in a lesbian relationship and it is not uh it is not just meant as kind of excitement for male viewers. Right. That it is very it is very sweet and romantic um and not chaste. That's the other thing because she is topless. So there is that element of like well this is Yeah, sexual. they're not sanitizing it, but it's also not Not sanitized, exactly. Like I I I it's just kind of like in every, I mean, well, and obviously we'll see where it goes to. Um, but as of now, like, yeah, in every way, it's just done so well. I'm and kind of blown away. And it's totally built into their character growth, right? It's, it's a completely, I don't mean just that it's in character, but also that it's progresses their characters, right? In a new way. It's not just like, oh, let's just see these characters sleep together or why not have this. It's like, it's part of their progression. And I, I like that, that part of it. Um, and also it's notable for being one of probably the healthiest relationships on the show. I would put it high up there. I can't, I can think of very few uh, that would, that would even be in the conversation of healthy relationships on Deadwood, it, at least romantic relationships. So actually I, I wanted to ask you about that uh, just as a, a slight um, aside from that, which is uh, w- the scene with Saul and Trixie. Um, which is only in this episode because they were asked in the meeting, even though Saul doesn't actually have anything to say. Um, and uh, it's a really sweet scene. Uh, yeah, it's this little moment. Like I don't, I, I don't I, know I don't if I would wanna... call their relationship healthy, but you know, <laughs> it's not. I mean, all Trixie does is scream and swear at him. Um, <laughs> but it is sweet in its way of of when Saul is suggests that they could take. I mean this is again kind of tempered by just the sadness of like what they're talking about is taking in Sophia because Alma's not fit to, to be her parent anymore. Right. And I mean, um, obviously it's a bit more about like, just generally they would be willing, you know, she it's what's really tragic about this, of course, is that Trixie just doesn't believe that no matter how many times Saul has said this, that, and it does, by the way, we've learned now that they are sleeping together, like not just having sex, but actually sleeping in the same room, 
which is what mm-hmm. Saul wanted. And she was like, no, I have to be separate. And she was like, uh, you know, she just can't believe that he's genuinely interested in her. Like, he just can't. She can't get over that. Well, and and I, I like this moment for, like, that confirmation that, like, no, he's dead serious. What I, what I like about this moment is, first of all, the way she says, like, you'd have us care for a child. She says it in the way where you think she's going to be like, that's ridiculous. Like, how could you even suggest mm. that? That's stupid. But then she the usual tone hand. for Trixie. <laughs> exactly. But then she then she holds his hand and it's all of a sudden it's like super oh no, tender. She's, yeah. She's taken aback because like of how moved she is that he thinks of her that way. That's really moving. Um, I don't want to get off Jane and Joni, though, because I do have more to say. Yeah, yeah, sure, um, sure, sure. I just wanted to say in terms of healthy relationships and it's sort of a side, you know, scene. It's not like a primary one. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. The other thing that I want to say is that this is not a coming out moment, which I really appreciated because I think a lot of the time a showrunner will think that in order to have a character in a gay relationship, they have to have a coming out. They have to come to terms with quote unquote, come to terms with their sexuality. Right. Mm. Um, Like I saw, I watched uh, the most, the new season of stranger things and I won't spoil who, but there's a character on the show that's introduced this season who comes out as gay in one of the late episodes. Mm. And that's a moment that's like, you know, I get, again, time period, but you could have just had her be gay. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think I might have appreciated the character more if it hadn't been, like, a twist because it's presented as such a way... Because the whole thing is she has romantic chemistry with a, with a male character and it's presented as, like, oh, we can't be in a relationship because I like girls. And then it's it's done. The scene itself is not bad. Um, it's presented in a really kind of again a sweet way. They have a nice relationship. Mm. Um, but I just wish that like every time there's a gay character, it doesn't have to be about. That's kind of like the only in a very heterosexual industry. That's the only way that that you can people can conceive of a gay narrative is as a coming out narrative. Like how many of these fucking movies and TV shows are just about coming out? I really like that you get to have these, you don't need a scene of Jane being like, well, I guess my whole life I really have liked girls, right? You don't need that. It's kind of, it can come across as kind of like patronizing, honestly. I like that she is just this character and she just exists and we know her. And also she can be in this relationship. There doesn't have to be a coming out story. I thought that was... Again, and this is part of the reason, like, I never would have thought this would happen on this show. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, uh, it's jaw dropping. I, 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 I don't have enough words for it. I, <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm glad that, I'm glad you liked it. It's, um, it's, cause it's not easy to do. And yeah, you're right. I mean, there's this, this resistance to just like having gay characters just like be alive and like live their life normally um and uh this show yeah just sort of has them doing exactly that i mean there's a lot of context for it right so it's like you know it does put even more i would say in in many ways a lot even more tragedy on we, we don't really know for certain you know in fairness we don't know for certain like their sexualities right for all that we know they're bisexual or one of them's bisexual and the other one isn't. I mean, yeah, like um, I say gay. So, that's why I specifically say a gay relationship and not like these characters are, 
I think I said on Twitter that there that there's Deadwood lesbians, <laughs> but I mean that in a very flippant way. Right, 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 right. But but the reason I say that is just that like Joni's been forced into you know Jane has had a very different life. We don't really know much about her past relationships if she's had any. Uh, she clearly had great affection for Bill, but that doesn't seem like it was necessarily romantic. Though it could have been. Who knows, right? Um, but Joni, right, was forced into basically the the uh you know into sex work as a kid um and exclusively with men as far as we know um and if she's not even not not that it would be any better i suppose if it was if she was straight but like it's just this like it just adds another layer of just misery to her existence in this in that particular world um and also into like you know we don't know for sure but obviously sai has a lot of has a lot of affection. I don't know how to describe it. He, he likes Joni. Um, and she, if she never reciprocated because she's not interested in men, um, that also probably had some pretty, you know, size like a violent dude, right? So, like, we don't know the history of that, but there's a lot of implications of how this has played out in their lives up to this point. Uh, and none of it's particularly good, um, at least on, on the parts that we know about. Uh, but it's this good moment of like focusing on a quite a positive turn of events for both of them um, that neither of them, I guess, really thought that they could have. Yeah, it is again. And these are two characters who have been through so much, like you say, and who, especially this season have not have really only had each other that they're able to find solace and peace in the other person. Um, ah, It's just so sweet. I, I just love it. Yeah, so um, I I guess I'm kind of curious to know what is in store for like Jan and Joni as characters now that they're not even looking after the Shazami. Yeah, I don't know. Um, they're not going to be dealing with the new school or anything like that. They just asked for it to be built. Um, they're at Shaughnessy's now, uh, which is just a hotel. So... Yeah, they're kind of as as care like interpersonally. There's a lot of development in terms of their like status in the town or like what they're doing. Um, it still remains a bit vague as to where they're going. And you know, <laughs> my favorite. It's going to be so exciting to watch the movie because, you know, for all we know, uh, Milch had like a whole bunch of ideas about where these characters were going to go, and then those all got canceled. And I wonder, you know, like after 13 years, and he makes this film how are they going to fill in the gaps on characters who didn't necessarily have like a direction? You know, how do you say like, where's this character in 13 years? Like with Seth, you can come up with something with Ali. You can go, like they have a direction or like a, a general state or status that you can weave into like where they are in the future. But Jane and Joni aren't anything anymore. Like in terms of profession or, 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 or position. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know how that's going to play. I mean, they, yeah, they don't have jobs. So, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where that's going. Um, but uh, I am super excited because I am fairly sure that we'll get some follow-up on this storyline uh, uh, in the future. So, cool. Um, the last thing of the episode, because I don't think we could talk... There's not worth talking about Langriche. There's really nothing going on there. Um 
Unless you had something to say. No, just just Chesterton's dying, and they're all being super theatrical about it. Screams. Of course he's dying! <laughs> no! <laughs> it's great. It's great. I, do yeah, lo- I love um, the actors. They're, they're, they're still fun. Um, and, I, and I like that uh, there's a cool shot of... Um, uh, I don't remember their names, but... Um, was it Bellegarde? Yeah. Uh, and the and the two women and they're in the the chesami and there's this great shot of the them in the center of the room, um, sort of posed together again, also very theatrically. <laughs> um, but other than that, yeah, you're right. I don't really have much to say here. Still very unclear. The only thing we do know is that Lingrish is in denial about this guy dying and also is very sad, and that's what he tells Al. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. Um, yeah, the other scene we get is with uh, um, Steve. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Um, huh. It is... Yeah. I don't really know what to make of it, to be honest. Um, so what it happens in this scene, basically, is Steve finds Fields asleep in the livery. He says he's leaving tomorrow. Mm. And then he's being... And Steve is being his usual self, but there's this moment where he, like... There he, like, shifts, and he says to Fields, so where are you headed? Right. And I was like, huh. <laughs> and if they had left it at that, I think I would have, like, I would have loved it. As it is, I like this scene. Because mm-hmm. I think what happens in the rest of the scene is basically Steve is shout- Steve offers him a job, you know, very gingerly. And then Field says, no, obviously. Yeah, right. And Steve, well, I, I wouldn't want you to work for me anyway. And he's screaming. Right. And, and he leaves the scene by saying, don't murder me in my sleep, and I won't murder you either. And he leaves. Mm-hmm. And it's this moment of, like, he is, he is, the, the hatred has dropped a couple degrees. And I think this is a good He also seems on. like he's struggling to come up with insults as yeah. quickly as he did before, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's it's a follow-on from last week when we noted that he was very clearly feeling guilty about what happened to Hostetler. Um, but yeah, it's like that guilt has kind of transformed and made him a little less volatile and not less racist necessarily, but he, he it makes him a little less, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, like I said, I don't really know what to make of this scene. Um, it's not a turn I was expecting from him whatsoever. The I will say the um, it's quite a moment too because it's not like he's just like you can stay here for tonight, but then like leave, um, and take ever take the other black guy with you. Um, he specifically says the opposite of that, which is stay here. And work for me, so be in close proximity to me, mm-hmm. which is, um, again, just not what you expect from from uh, the other fields uh, from Steve. <laughs> um, I appreciated that. I'm glad that they did not write it so that Fields accepted the job offer because yeah. that would have been that would have been bad. terrible. <laughs> um, and. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, I also I don't know how I feel about like a redemption arc for Steve. That's like, where I'm kind of at too. You know what I mean? I, I don't know that they're going to develop that at all. Um, I trust them not to go all the way with it in that way. I will yeah. say that. 
Like, I trust them not to be like, oh, and he's a good guy now, and he's not racist anymore. I think this is as far as they're going to go with it, and I'm comfortable with that. But I think it's like they took one toe a little too far. <laughs> just, like, I, just, I, a, just a millimeter too far. I wondered that as well. I mean, it's amazing because, like, there is this thing that I believe very deeply in, which is just like literal exposure to people of other cultures and things like, which it's not like I came up with this very, it was like a common, well-known sociological phenomenon. But like when you're exposed to people uh, and you aren't going off of, uh, you know, racist movies and books and, you know, notices and rumors and whatever, uh, turns out you learn that other people are just regular humans as well. And you can all, interact with one another without much trouble um but you like need to be exposed to these things you can't just rely on uh, you know what you've read or what you've heard um and so you know here's an example of steve being exposed to these these people who he's it sounds like he has had very little exposure to black folks in his life um but he's just decided that he doesn't like them um and uh though of course we don't know his his, his his background um but that's definitely the implication and uh after spending time with him and realizing that like hosteller and fields like really were just pretty normal people that he was just doing business with on quite a normal basis um he's kind of realized that he was the one who was being an asshole um and I kind of appreciate that as a message generally speaking not that like he's going to suddenly not be racist but just that time has just worn him down and also the consequences of his actions have worn him down um so that's it's better than the like a black person did something nice for me and now i'm not racist anymore kind yeah, of yeah that would have been bad narrative awful. which is not which is not what they've done it's very clearly based on like i said exposure and also on the consequences of him having someone killed uh basically through his um through his his uh his racist attacks. Um, so I, I appreciate it on that front, but I agree with you that it, it, it's maybe pushing that line. And I don't know. I can't say one way or the other in terms of where that goes with Steve. Uh, Cause I genuinely don't remember. If this is the last we see, of Steve, <laughs> I'll say that if this is the last we see of Steve, I'll be, I'll, I'll be fine with it. Okay. I think you went again, a millimeter too far in the redemption angle, but fine. I don't think it's bad. I think, I think this is the right way to go. I think it would have been maybe worse if this didn't happen and he was just completely unrepentant and just still evil. I like mm. that you give him a little bit of shade. Um, yeah, but if they go further with this, and then then I will, then we'll have to have that a conversation about it. <laughs> Soren, you've. Uh... You've led me to this show, and I have to tell you, I'm not happy with it. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. All right. So that's that. What do we uh, What do we have next week? Next week is ooh, Leviathan smiles. Interesting. We're directed by Ed Bianchi. I mean, it's a great name, and Ed Bianchi is uh, is your guy. Um, Awesome. So uh, I will talk to you next week about that. In the meantime, for folks listening out there, if you haven't already, uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, on your RSS reader. 
um, of choice. Uh, all the links are included on the post. Uh, if you need them, uh, you can also just link directly to the uh, the audio if you want that, um, the the actual MP3 audio file. Uh, and you can also subscribe just on MovieFail to all posts. So if we post any articles or anything else, you'll get an email in your inbox, and it's, it's a good way to keep up with the show. Um, yeah, and uh, so next week, uh, Leviathan Smiles uh, by Ed Bianchi. I'm very excited. Thank you.